As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Cornish crab salad on lemon blini, pressed duck terrine with fruit chutney, a roulade of goat's cheese with caramelised walnuts, Scottish smoked salmon on beetroot blini. All of these ingredients, or most of them anyway, carefully sourced from Royal Warrant holding companies, including British ingredients. So that was Hugh Edwards from BBC News, running fears through the wedding day menu at Prince William and Kate Middleton's big day. And Scottish salmon was very much centre stage. Not only is it a sought-after royal warrant and a prestigious Label Rouge from France, but salmon is also the UK's biggest food export. Last time we spoke with three guests working in the early days to talk about how the pioneers set up Scottish salmon farming. If you've not heard that episode, go back and check it out. It's a great listen and there's some brilliant stories. Today, though, we're looking at how technology has developed the industry in recent years and how Scottish salmon is making changes towards farming more sustainably. Coming up, we'll have Clara McGee, a trainee manager on a fish farm on the Isle of Rum. We'll also have Steve Bracken back with us, and he worked in the industry for 40 years. Later, we'll have cleaner fish expert Lewis Bennett and Ewan Leslie, an engineer who's been working on ways to recycle fish waste from the bottom of the nets. So, lots to get our teeth into in this episode, which is in partnership again with the Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation. And here to guide us through it all is on-farm producer Jack Fillimore. Welcome Clara McGee and Steve Bracken. Let's start with you, Clara. When and how did you get into fish farming? Back in 2018, I decided to have a bit of a career change. So I came from a background in environment and sustainability. Um, I did my first degree in sustainable development way back in 2013, I think. Worked for a few years in environmental consulting. And then I decided that I fancied a change. And I'd always been interested in fish farming, um, in sustainable food production, uh, the marine environment and the west coast of Scotland. So I went back to university, did a master's in sustainable aquaculture and then ended up working for Maui on the Isle of Muck as a farm technician in 2018. So yeah, it was a bit of a, a curveball um, career change, but one that I'm glad that I made and I'm really enjoying it so far. So we live for two weeks on the island. We travel out to site every day by boat. Um, we work 12-hour days, Monday to Friday, and 10 hours on weekends. And then you get two weeks off every month, which is nice. So I travel home to Uist, which is where I stay when I'm off. And can you describe a typical day for us? In fish farming, no two days are the same, and that's one of the, the reasons that I love it. So, I mean, I guess working with any animal um, every day is different, and you're really 
at their at their will. We feed our fish every day. That's one one of, if not the most most important job that we do. And we start every day by doing environmental checks. So we check our water for plankton and zooplankton and general environmental parameters. And we'll do just general maintenance on the barge and our nets. We'll do net washing in the summer season. Um, And then if we're ever doing treatments or harvest, that's obviously uh, sort of factored in throughout the cycle. So yeah, it's a very varied job and one that you have to um, turn your hand to, to many different things, but that keeps things interesting. And it's something that I really enjoy about it. Quite a different life to environmental consultancy. Tell me what, what are the things you love about that change and what are the challenges? Yeah, I mean, I've got used to it now, but it was a bit of a shock to the system because um, I went from a kind of Monday to Friday, nine till five, having a, a diary with meetings scheduled and deadlines that had to be done by certain times and you knew exactly what you were going to be doing every day. And then you go to fish farming and plans change like the wind and you think you know what you're doing, but then the next hour, everything's different. Um, that took a bit of an adjustment, but um, you kind of get used to it. And I think to be in the industry particularly in production, you do have to be very flexible and um, willing to adapt to both the environment and just situational changes. So, yeah, it was it was a change, but um, I'm far happier now than I was sitting in an office looking at a computer, that's for sure. In, in the first episode, we started to hear what Steve was explaining to us, the scale of the operation when he first started out. And I, I wanted to get a sense of how large that's grown now. Can you explain the sort of scale of it to us? Yeah, I think the scale of it is something that's very difficult to comprehend if if you're not in fish farming. Out on rum, we have 12 pens that are 120 meter, you know, 120 meter circular pens. So they're big. Um, We have at the moment just under 900,000 fish. Um, We have a biomass of up to 2,500 tonnes that we can have on site at any time. We have a feed barge that holds 400 tonnes of feed and every day we could be feed. At the moment, we're feeding about eight or nine tonnes of feed a day. So the numbers are big. It's, It's a huge scale operation. And that's just one site. You know, in in Scotland, there's many sites in Maui, there's many companies. So it's big numbers. And I think that's hard for the public to understand. Um, Being at sea and underwater, it's hard to get your head around. But yeah, so it's logistical, not just on one site, but then you're trying to fit one site into the whole company. So feed deliveries have to be planned well in advance to make sure that you don't run out of feed or that you never have too much feed. Then you've got harvests that need to be coordinated based on fish sizes of all the different farms up and down the west coast of Scotland. So yeah, logistically, it's a it's a bit of a brain fat frazzles you a little bit, but you've got a great team of people um, working in the company that all have their unique role and somehow <laughs> manages to keep uh, ticking over very well. And presumably you've got to get vets from the mainland or visits and and you've got bad weather to contend with. You're offshore. Yeah, for us, I think those out where we are on rum, I would say those elements of it are more challenging than maybe some sites. Like you say, boats are the only way we can get out to rum. So we see our vets regularly. We get divers in routinely. And we also have, you know, a number of contractors and that kind of thing. But yeah, the the only way we can get them is from collection from either Malig or Armadale on Sky. So that's just another element of logistics that we need to factor in that maybe other sites don't. But it, it makes it work. I mean, the weather is a big issue, hopefully not at this time of year, but in the winter it can be. But you've just kind of got to roll with the punches and that's the, the nature of where we are, really. So what did it come on to looking at how far the technology has come 
So I'd like to take you back, Steve, and for you to talk us through how on earth you were counting fish, collecting fish, all these sort of nuts and bolts of it, and then look at how that's done today. Well, when I started in 1977, um, fish counting was a big problem. You know, you were, you were counting fish manually, so you were netting them out and using clicker counters to, to count them. And of course, they would rust up or you'd lose them or whatever. So the idea came up of why don't we film the fish passing from one side of a pen to another. And this was done with the resources of, of Unilever, who put a lot of time, money and effort into trying to solve this problem. So the idea was that we had a mini countryman. Now, a mini countryman then is about 20 times smaller than the ones that we have today. So it was a very small car. And what we did was we mounted an aluminium scaffold tower out of the windows in the back of the car and then perched on the top of it, we put a video camera. So that was all very good and well and then filled it with batteries to, to power the video recording equipment, which was all reel to reel back then, no, no cassettes. And then the Mini was moved onto a raft and the raft was then pushed out to the farm and moored up against the pens. So the idea was that, yep, you'd crowd the fish to one side and then as they passed over the centre, you would film them just going over a few at a time. Now, again, all very good and well, but this was weather dependent. It wasn't the most stable platform to have your car on and could be kind of nauseating if you're sitting inside it and you're, you're rocking about in this thing. So the challenge was to do this as accurately as you could. And then at the end of the day, when you'd counted your pens, you had to go home and then count the fish on the reel-to-reel video recording. So that was a job you tended to find you could delegate. You know, hopefully you didn't have to do that yourself. But of course, everybody was wanting to know the number of fish in the pen. And so it had to be done pretty quickly. I mean, it must have taken hours. I mean, how many fish are you counting? How long did that take you? Well, unlike Clara's pens, I mean, we, we had very few fish in them, you know, a thousand or two thousand, something like that. But it was the rate of flow of getting these fish to cross the pen. And you were relying on one of your team to just gently move them across. And if too many came, oh, you know, you were, how am I going to count this lot? And you couldn't start again. You know, you just had to go with it, go with the flow. So, yes, it was very time consuming. And I have to say, at the end of all of that, it really wasn't that accurate. Now, the idea was fantastic that, that you know, people were putting a lot of thought into how do we solve this problem of counting fish. And it was groundbreaking. And I think it was a, a good start on getting people to think, how do we do this more accurately and more reliably? Again, you know, today there are some fantastic companies out there producing, you know, world-class equipment for this, this kind of job. I'm just chuckling because I drive a mini countryman and I'm just imagining it stuck in a pen <laughs> scaffolding. <laughs> but yeah, um, things have moved on a lot. We, we're very fortunate that we don't have to go through that now. So when our smolts come to sea, um, well, they're counted sort of onto the wellboat and counted off the wellboat. So our fish come, they're discharged into the pen from the wellboat. We're given a piece of paper and 
on that will tell you you have got x amount of fish in your pen an average weight of this and you know as steve mentioned there's companies now now that are designing incredible pieces of kit that i certainly can't profess to understand how they do it but um we don't have any of that um that laborious work that steve had back in the day and are you dealing with um the harvest of them i mean are you you're not you're, you're having to select on size presumably still explain how that's done well so when your fish come to sea you know how many fish you have in a pen you know your average weight and then every day when we feed our fish we know how much each individual pen is eating we enter that into an online system and that's of every day generates what the average size in the pen will be based on the amount of feed that you've given in so over time you can you know your fish increase on size you can monitor it through this software and then when they start getting to harvestable size you would then start taking fish out of pen so yeah I mean there's a logistics team that work out all of our harvests across the company and they're trying to marry what customers need in different parts of the world or supermarkets in this country need with what we have in the sea at any one time. Um, we're not harvesting at the moment. Our fish are still too small, but we hopefully will be sometime later on this summer. And that's an exciting time when you start um, sending your fish off. It's quite a, a proud moment when you've you know grown them onto that stage. So looking forward to it. Steve, tell us a bit about how how you were catching and selecting fish based on size yourselves. Yeah, that was uh, that was another uh, challenge as well. So for us, uh, when it came to harvest the fish, we had to, to do this all by hand. So the fish were hand netted. And the way that we did it was we would bring a pen of fish into a floating pontoon at the side of the loch. And then we would kneel on a carpet and then there would be somebody, maybe one person, two people possibly, netting out the fish onto the carpet where there were perhaps three or four guys who would kill the fish. Once they were stunned, you would put them into ice bins and they'd be taken away to the to the processing plant. It sounds like the industry is, con- is constantly looking at ways to build on and improve and take advantage of new technologies there have been quite a lot of challenges for the industry along the way and, and now. So let's have a look at those, those challenges facing the industry in recent years. A big challenge throughout farming has been lice. And last week I, I met Lewis Bennett, who works at Loch Duart uh, on cleaner fish. See there, fish are flattening around the net, so I'll count these out nice and quick. Cleaner fish are a micro species of fish that we use within the pens to naturally keep lice levels under control from the sand. So we, these are a fish that we either farm or they're a fish that we capture from the wild. They are native to the UK in all uh, respects. We input them to the salmon pens usually in the late spring summer period and then these fish will naturally learn to live with the salmon. We provide all of the habitat for them so that they're nice and safe. We provide feed, and these fish naturally eat the lice off the salmon over a period of time. If done correctly, they should keep the lice levels at zero all the way through production cycle uh, until harvest. It's not an easy target to hit. We sometimes do make it look a little bit easy. And I think sometimes we do just get used to the fact that these results do come to us quite naturally. Um, But again, it is something we have to work on and it is something you have to be on top of. 
you know, the, the, the results can be achieved in these systems. It is just a case of uh, doing everything in the correct order uh, and getting the RAS in nice and quickly. Uh, the quicker you can get them in, the quicker you'll hold the numbers at zero and they'll stay that way. And is that the reason why cleaner fish didn't work before, do you think, in the 90s? Cleaner fish didn't work for us initially in the way that they do now, simply because we didn't have this knowledge. Um, in many ways, we weren't able to get fish stock quick enough. So because we weren't able to get the fish quick enough, we couldn't get them into the sites in the period of, you know, let's say May or June. We were getting them in in sort of July, August, by which time you're at the height of the summer. Lice are going to grow quicker. Their life stage will go from being the smallest um, to the largest in the space of seven days. And so you're almost putting too much pressure on the cleaner fish. You know, their job, you know, first thing you've taken them in from the hatchery, you put them in there from the wild, they've got to settle in. You know, no, no animal, no creature on earth will behave properly in the correct manner if it's thrown into an alien environment. So because of that, we were putting a lot of pressure on those fish where we put them in the pen and, you know, people wanted the result within two or three weeks. And the fact is it probably took them two or three weeks to settle in. And then you're going to expect them to exhibit that behaviour you want them to exhibit, which is grazing on the lice from that point. Um, and because we weren't getting those results, people were thinking it doesn't work or they're not working or they're not going to work. And it's like, no, it's just very simply those fish have got to go through a process to get to the point where they're then happy. In terms of new stuff that we're working on and things that we're always trying to progress on, uh, feed is one of them, changing the diet for seasons different diets do we need to present the diet differently do we need to put fish in at a different period of the year do we need to put them in later or earlier can we put less fish in which is something over the years we have done with clean fish we've slowly dropped the percentage back to getting the same efficiency and the same lice results but with less fish hides is probably the biggest one now hides are the habitat that we put in the salmon pens to make sure that the fish have somewhere to hide rest anywhere that they want to sit rather than sitting on the bases of the net or just consistently swimming around the pen, which is energy exertion. So this year we will be trialling about six different hide systems, uh, two or three of them specific to the winter to make sure that we can improve the survival uh, from November to sort of beginning of April. Um, and also just making sure that the habitat that we're providing suits the wrasse as well as the lumpfish. We are going to be tagging wrasse wild and farmed and we're going to be tagging salmon to, to see what the behaviour suggests. You know, is this where the salmon come to the wrasse to get cleaned or do the wrasse go to the salmon or is it a little bit of both? This behaviour that we're going to see will also allow us to work out where the hides need to be, what design do they need to be, uh, where do we have the feed, is it something that all the fish are getting or is it something we need to move to a different position? So there's a lot of things that that project is going to bring to our production and make known to us uh, for our knowledge retention for the future. That was Lewis Bennett from Lock Duart talking about a solution of using cleaner fish to um, keep on top of lice in, in the farms. Hopefully that sort of solution is reducing the number, the impact that farming has on the environment, reducing use of chemicals and things like that. So I think um, there's a lot of misconceptions around fish farming, particularly when it comes to medicinal treatments. I think it's important to remember that at the end of the day, we're farmers and we rely upon our environment for what we do, just like sheep farmers do and 
pig farmers and chicken farmers, you know, we need the environment to do what we do. And it's important, therefore, for us to look after it as best we can. And from our point of view, prevention is always better than treatment. So in terms of lice, we use cleaner fish. We use another method called lice skirts, which are just sort of creating a bit of a barrier at the top five to six metres of the pen to stop lice getting into the pen. So we do all of these things to try and minimise lice being an issue, but inevitably it can happen. They're a naturally occurring parasite in the wild, and that's just something that we have to deal with as best we can. Sometimes when I get asked by friends and family about the lice issue, I try to liken it to sheep. You know, sheep get maggots, you doze sheep for maggots. It's the same thing. It is a naturally occurring parasite that affects our stock. And at the end of the day, the welfare of our stock is the number one priority. Um, we have a suite of treatments that we use, not just medicinal. So we use fresh water baths as well for, for lice treatments. Um, we have uh, a number of mechanical treatments. And then if we have to, the last option would always be would be medicinal it's not something that we we do super regularly but at the end of the day the fish are our number one priority the industry is continually evolving we do have an awful lot of challenges that's for sure I don't think we have all the answers I don't think any fish farmer would profess that it's a perfect industry but it's a lot better than I think a lot of people think it is and we're always doing our best and trying to improve and that's something I like about it is that there are challenges but we need people to overcome these and come up with new solutions. With, with freshwater, there, there's two ways of going about it. There is, um, we can use natural freshwater that we do, I guess, suppose harvest from natural streams or rivers. But now we actually have two large well boats in the company that can produce their own freshwater through reverse osmosis. So they can take water on board, uh, seawater on board, and through, again, some incredibly clever technology that someone has designed, they can change that salt water into freshwater. So Again, that's another bonus for us. We don't have to rely on naturally produced fresh water. Um, so yeah, there's different, these, these things are always evolving. It's incredible what new technologies are coming through. Look, looking back to uh, the early days of, of, of feeding fish when it was very basic and it was just fish meal blocks of, of uh, blue whiting and, and ice basically to make up a simple pelleted diet. The feed industry has moved on enormously and it's hugely sophisticated now. So much so that uh, from where we were in the 70s and 80s with very, very high uh, marine ingredient content uh, in, in the feed, this has dropped down dramatically. And that wasn't just catching fish. This was also byproduct of human consumption of fish, so taking fish guts and... Yeah, yeah, from, from processing, you're using all the offcuts there. And, and so that's been a huge huge benefit. So it's been looked at in a very sort of practical way and, and I think very, very wisely to make best use of these, these raw materials. But I think that along with the, the, the change in the, the recipes, if you like, uh, the method of feeding also uh, has, has changed dramatically because uh, thinking back on it, you're looking into a pen of fish, you just didn't know what they were eating and what they weren't eating. So we did have waste. That, that was a fact. But now, with the monitoring equipment that exists, that, that, that are on these feed barges today, you're controlling that so precisely. So from the early days of food conversion ratios maybe being 1.3, 1.4 plus, it's down now to 1 to 1.1 perhaps. Again, Clara would, would be able to say better. So the improvements there, not just in the diets, 
the reduction in, in fish meal, fish ingredients, marine ingredients, and the inclusion of, of plant materials, plus the feeding methods have contributed hugely, I think, to uh, you know, a reduction in environmental impact. Comparing that to other forms of farming, that conversion rate is that's pretty amazing, really, as a statistic. 1.1 kilos in and one out. I mean, that's efficient protein farming. <laughs> it, it's hugely efficient. But as I say, a lot of it is, well, it, it's primarily down to the change in, in, in the feeds themselves, but also in the administration of the feed uh, to the fish. It's hugely precise. And with the, the monitoring equipment that we have today on the farms, it is just chopping cheese. There's no comparison. I mean, we were flying, uh, flying blind. I believe as an industry, not just as a company, but as an industry in Scotland, um, there has been a commitment to only source um, 100% sustainably accredited uh, feed ingredients going forward. I know a large number, if not most of them already are. And, you know, as Steve said, there has been a move away from fish oil and fish meal uh, to more plant-based ingredients. But again, there's a lot of research going into other novel um, ingredients, including insects as a form of protein. Um, So it's it's, again, feeding is the biggest cost. As as a fish farmer, it's your biggest cost. And you want to make it as as, a, as efficient as you can do um, and you know as Steve said the equipment that we use now is just is unbelievable you we have cameras in the water so we can watch the fish feeding we have cameras above the water and um, so we can closely monitor every pen individually we can go up and down in the pen at different depths and now there's also technology that has pellet recognition so the cameras themselves can detect pellets falling past and then they would automatically reduce the rate going into that pen. So there's a huge drive to make feeding more efficient than it already is. But I think we're doing we're doing a very good job at the moment, for sure. As an industry, um, we also have a sustainability charter that came out, I think it was at the end of 2020 or early 2021, um, titled A Better Future for Us All. So that was really led by the SSPO, the Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation. And it's just a sort of united front from all all bodies in the industry um, to have a more sustainable future and and, um, sign up to a number of commitments, including sustainable feed ingredients, supporting local communities and affordable housing in the West Coast, which is really important, I think. And I think the Scottish salmon industry does a huge amount already in in their communities. But yeah, it's good just to see the industry as a whole coming together and and making that commitment for, for sustainability. In the farms, you've got these huge areas, huge, huge pens. And, um, you know, there have been criticisms levied at the industry about the waste that lies at the bottom. Obviously, that's reducing with more effective feeding. But you you do inevitably have the fish excrement there. I caught up with an engineer working on cutting edge solutions to put fish excrement to good use. My name is Ewan Leslie. I'm currently Engineering Manager for Freshwater Division of Scottish Sea Farms, based out of Burcaldon near Open. From um, Burcaldon, um, we take eggs in and produce um, juvenile smolts, which then go to sea from the hatchery. Um, part of this is looking after the RAS system, which is mechanical, electrical pumps, filters, which we take the water from the fish tanks through the filters. And from the filters, the waste from there um, feeds uh, waste excrement from the fish themselves is then transferred to a sludge holding tank. From that holding tank, um, we then create a sludge, which um, becomes a, a commodity, shall we say, where we can actually use it 
um, to go to land injection um, so as a fertiliser for farmers in the east coast. And uh, so then um, before it would have to go to a disposal site. So we decided that that wasn't the way to go. The mite we're going to produce and we would take it a different route. When I worked at the processing plants, we had uh, fish waste from there, but a different type of waste. Uh, it was from parts of fish when the fish were cut up. And we had sludge produced from there as well, from the bloods and oils from the fish. So the background was there already, but that was going to an AD plant to create electricity. So when we looked at building this site um, for a hatchery, um, I got the lowdown from the production team on how much waste would be produced. And it was going to be quite a sniffing amount. It was going to end up being about three tankers to four tankers a week. Again, South Sheen, which is a processing plant, which has one tanker a week. You know, So we had to find another avenue for it. So we contacted a few companies who dealt with waste, one of them being Rock Highlands and um, Stroke Avanti. We then went out to Norway as their guests to have a look at a couple of plants that they'd done out over Norway for the same same sort of idea with hatchery. And from, from on from that, we formulated a plan that actually the product or the waste that we would have would become a product. So we inject polymer into it, aerate it, give it time to do its work, and the polymer binds all the waste together. You can then extract the water uh, using a belt filter from the from the sludge, and then the farmer uses it um, with his tractor and his trailer and spreads it over into the farm, and then that produces a beautiful fertilizer, and that, because it's got um, nit nutrients in it, um, nitrogen, potassium, and potash. Um, Avanti take samples um, of it, send it to the lab, just to make sure that the, the content of the sludge is consistent. And then they also take soil samples uh, from their fields that they're injecting to make sure that they're not overloading the fields. We tried um, a local farmer here. He was very interested in it as well. The farmer could come in his own trail and his own tractor, you know, go two miles down the road, spread it in his fields, you know, and it would have been a beautiful situation to be in. But unfortunately, the West Coast does not have the soil to make up as the East Coast does, so it doesn't lend itself to the same nutrients. Um, we, we have looked at um, pelleting or bagging as a dry matter, um, but um, so far the energy required to take it from um, a basically an 84% water solution down to a 20% water solution, uh, and the energy required, we just, it just doesn't make it viable. And uh, we're currently looking at a different plant where the plant could take various wastes and uh, create heat from that waste, basically burn it, which then could power a turbine to make electricity. Um, the other thought is to use that heat to create a drying room to take chips, um, so take basically take raw, raw uh, scrub and trees and chip it to the right size, dry it on site, and then use that to feed our own biomass plant, which then helps us with the fish on the side, so it's like a continuous cycle. That was Ewan Leslie from Scottish Sea Farms. What do you see for the future of the industry, say 10, 20 years down the line? You know, are there, are there plans to grow? Do you see yourselves changing and being able to meet more sustainable targets? Clara? Well, I think, you know, as we've discussed in the last 15, 20 minutes from Steve talking how things were 50, 40 years ago to how they are now, the advances that we've seen are are, are huge. They're, the industry is almost um, unrecognisable to what it used to be, and those changes are ongoing. You know, everything is continually developing and always looking for a better alternative. So I have no doubt that we'll continue to progress and the way the industry is now will be different in 10 years' time, and, and I think it will be for the better. And Steve, you've seen so much change over, over your career where do you think things are heading for fish farming? Will we see a bit more offshore living? 
Well, it's, it's quite interesting because when we started to look at these offshore sites, we thought that, that our staff would have to, to live on the barges. But communities were, were very welcoming and saying, well, look, why don't you live on the island? And uh, as has been said before, houses have been built. It's been great for the company. It's been great for the local communities. And hopefully that will go from, from strength to strength. But I think as for living on them, the conditions that, that uh, farm staff would have to put up with uh, certain times of the year, I think that's a tough call. A final word to you, Clara. You are living on these, in these communities now. What, what's life like? You must be very, very involved in that community, given the, the number of people living there. Yeah, I think, I mean, this year has been quite difficult with COVID. You know, we've obviously been quite separate from the community. We've had that in mind. But, you know, from my experience of living and working on muck, it was amazing. I, I had an absolute ball. The community there were so welcoming to everyone who worked for Maui. Um, and you really had a sense of feeling like you were at home when you weren't at home. You know, you were away at work, but you felt like you were part of a community. And that's a really special, a really special thing. And um yeah, as for living on the barge, <laughs> I'm not sure if I would be that keen. Um, but, you know, there are places in the world, I think in Canada, there are sites where people live on the barge and the level of accommodation that's provided there is looks incredible. So never say never. I think that's something that we all have learned from working in this industry, that things change quickly and um, they're always evolving. So who knows what the future might hold. Never say never. Clara McGee, a trainee manager on a salmon farm in rum. And you also heard how retired Stevie Bracken helped kick off farming in Scotland just as the industry was getting going in the 70s. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I think it's amazing to hear of the scale of salmon farming and the logistics involved. And to me, it's been really inspiring to hear about the constant innovation in that sector. Today's podcast is brought to you, as always, by the team here at Seen and Heard and is supported this week by the Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation.